Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Welcome. Sizemore. Welcome. I'm your host, Charles Sizemore, and this is the Banyan Edge Podcast, America's number one source for smarter, safer, more profitable investing. We bring you the very best insights from the very best minds of the business, completely filter-free. Today, we are taking a page out of Warren Buffett's book. And yes, that was a play on words because we're talking about leading. Warren Buffett uh, was once asked by a class, you know, what is the secret to your success? And he said, and I quote, I'm actually going to get this quote exactly right. It was, I read and I think. That's it. And he, he really does. He reads 500 pages of material a day. Later in another quote with another class, he was giving advice and he told them, read 500 pages every day like me. <laughs> it's like interest. It compounds. Knowledge compounds over time. So while reading 500 pages a day may be a challenge for a lot of us, that is a lot of material to get through. <laughs> you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You, you got to start page by page here. And so to get us started, Amber Lancaster, what is it that you're reading these days? Okay, guys. Well, I am reading a book entitled The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates. And it's written by Dr. Peter Leeson. He's a uh, professor of economics and law at George Mason University. And what I'm really loving about this book is that it really dives behind the scenes, of course, of how pirate economies work. But what I like about it is that not only is it entertaining, it's a fun read, it's very informative, and it actually gives a very nice primer to economic theory. People hear the word economics and their eyes may glaze over, but I tell you, economics can be fun <laughs> when applied, and especially in a cool way that can get everyone interested in it. Now, we know pirates <laughs> were, were criminals, uh, but it's really interesting to see how their actual societies were put together. And the term uh, Charles and Adam of invisible hook actually derives from Adam Smith, uh, the father of modern economics and the author of the 1776 book titled In Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. So in this book, uh, Smith actually explored the central idea of economics and what he called the invisible hand now, the invisible hand, when applied to traditional consumers like, like us, like everyone watching, actually revolves around the concept that people are self-interested. We're interested in doing what is best for us, and most times for our loved ones, of course, and it's a matter of survival. So we need food, we need shelter, various goods and services to live. Uh, to take care of things on our own in isolation would be like a monumental task. So as a result, we actually inadvertently depend on others to grow, build, create, manufacture the stuff that we need to survive from the milk that we drink to the shoes that we wear. So Smith noted that while uh, seeking to satisfy our own interests and needs, we're led by a, quote, invisible hand and to serve other interests, too. So now um, in his book, The Invisible uh, Wealth of Nations, The Invisible Hand actually is turned on its head in The Invisible Hook, hence why the title is The Invisible Hook. So as Dr. Leeson notes, The Invisible Hook considers criminal self-interests effect on cooperation and within the pirate society, and is concerned with how criminal social groups work. 
Now we don't want to condone criminality, but it's pretty cool. So if you plan to read this book, just know everyone that you'll prim primarily study the history of piracy from 1716 to 1726 as well as explore many topics, but one of them is pretty cool. It is the Pirate Society model of democracy, which is very anti-autocratic organization and pro-democratically elected leaders in which pirates voted on important matters affecting all members of their group. And needless to say, this took, this actually took place, I was reading, of course, more than 50 years before the US Continental Congress approved the Declaration of Independence. So very, very interesting indeed. But yeah, if you have some free time, if you're going on a vacation for summer, then consider the invisible hook, the hidden economics of pirates as a summer read. So you're telling me a bunch of swashbuckling pirates, you know, R Matey and, and, and all of that, mm -hmm. um, were actually more enlightened and ahead of most political thinkers in the 1700s. That's, that's what I'm hearing? <laughs> That's what you're hearing. Isn't that interesting? But what they is sound that? more civilized too? It's so, yeah, for a bunch of guys that make, make their living uh, stealing stuff from other boats and uh, intentionally looking intimidating with the huge beards and you know like the eye patches and like, all of that was uh, as my understanding was a lot of that was a carefully crafted image. They wanted to look terrifying mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't actually have to shoot. Because actually yeah. shooting and attacking the boats would be, uh, I mean, that's, that's work and there's risk involved. Of course. And if you can just scare them into mm -hmm. giving you all of their stuff, mm -hmm. then no one dies and no one, you know, you don't use up all your bullets and uh, you know, your blunderbuss, matey, and all, and all that, you know? So uh, that was the worst pirate accent I've ever done. By <laughs> Let's just it's edit that good. out. <laughs> No, they but tell no. you if 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 a, what I what's what's most interesting is that of course pirates really most stemmed from working for the government, meaning they were state governed. I mean, there were privateers and there were buccaneers, but pirates themselves, which are outlaws, they actually started legitimately. And and but during war times, their pay would be in in current dollars, or at least when this book was written, they, they, it was noted between four thousand and eight thousand dollars a month. That's what they would bring in. But when in peace times, that money would be cut in half and they would try and get jobs maybe on merchant ships, but merchant ships would only have maybe between 13 and 17 uh, persons on that ship working, while pirate ships can have up to 200 people are working. And the bounty that they would, would steal, obviously, could make them millionaires and set for life. Uh, so it's just, and, and on these merchant ships, they were run very autocratically, like how most ships are run. You have the captain and the officers and then the seamen underneath. And they just didn't like how that was set up, how one person dictated how the whole vessel ran. Hence why they really delved into the democracy aspect of electing people here, having town meetings per se, and coming up with how they want to function orderly, doing disorderly type of thing. So it's pretty interesting. Where did the skull and crossbones come from? Have you gotten that far in the book yet? I was gotten, it's a whole chapter on Jolly Roger. So no, I haven't gotten that far, but if we come back and discuss it, I'll let you know. But that exactly how you mentioned before, when they would fly the skull and crossbone flag, it would just really be an intimidation tactic from the get-go, meaning that whatever uh, legitimate ship they are, are uh, right, uh, uh, robbing, that hopefully they will surrender. It will be less loss of life and they'll just be scared. Whew, just scared to pieces seeing that flag coming toward them on these on these different uh, schooners or whatever pirate ships they had. I'm thinking if I'm working on a boat and, mm -hmm. you know, got my, my looking glass out 
and I see, uh, you know, the, the the black flag hoisting with the skull and crossbones. Yeah, I'm going to be pretty scared. I'm probably going to give them whatever they want. That's that's exactly how that's going to go. No, it's true. And I, I, I mean, it happens in modern times. It happens today. And I'm going on a on a a trip on the water. I'm going on a cruise. And that's those are things you can think about, especially if you're on a smaller vessel. Hopefully you have a vessel that's fast and can outmaneuver, you know, the attack. But it can happen in modern times as well. So. Well, may you be safe from pirates. I, that's a, a very <laughs> odd way to greet someone, but I know. I, may you be safe from pirates. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> Appreciate it. So Adam, what are you reading these days? Well, not, something not quite as interesting as Amber. I have to say that was uh, definitely piqued my interest. I'll have to look that up. My my two-year-old, uh, two-and-a-half-year-old son is definitely into pirates right now. His grandfather dresses like pirate uh, for him. So I will have to see if they understand the economics of the uh, pirate community. Okay, sounds <laughs> uh, But yeah, my book is a little bit less interesting. It's uh, Adaptive Markets by Andrew Lowe. It's actually called Adaptive Markets, uh, Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. Uh, here's a copy of it right here. I take the jacket off, but um, this book came out in 2017, and I read it then. I'm rereading it now because it basically talks about how both individuals and strategies at large adapt to changes in the market environment, and it's kind of like a, a constant evolution where uh, the individual players and the, and the individual strategies that change with the market then end up changing the market itself, and it's just kind kind of a constant evolution. And I'm rereading re it now because I think that we're undergoing a, a sea change that this bear market has brought about. Um, you know, we came from a, a, an environment of very low interest rates for more than a decade and declining inflation, disinflation. Now we're in an environment of sticky, higher interest rates and stickier inflation. Uh, we've seen that have an effect on uh, whether value is beating growth or vice versa. And there's just uh, a rotation of industries and sectors that are doing better in this uh, kind of new environment than the old environment. So I'm rereading this to figure out, you know, if, if people are um, mispricing this sea change and how the strategies and the individual players in the market environment right now are likely to adapt, because I think we're in the early innings of this change and, you know, human beings are slow to change. Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to get my finger on right now. I remember, Lo, I read a ton of his white papers in grad school, and I remember thinking even back then, you know, this guy is smart. You know, he he is one of the the, the smarter minds in, in finance today. It's it is interesting. To, uh, to, he's basically trying to put forth a theory called the adaptive market uh, hypothesis to um, build upon the, the efficient market. See, there's the efficient hypo market hypothesis was kind of like, uh, you know, the, the Bible from the 60s onward. And then, you know, more recent in the past couple of decades, we've been talking about behavioral finance. So, the you know, efficient markets basically says that the markets, everybody is perfectly rational. Everybody that's acting in the market is perfectly rational, never makes a mistake, never makes a miscalculation, is basically doing physics-like equations. Yeah, and there and, are no degenerate gamblers in the stock market at all. No, no, never. never of course, never. <laughs> Um, and then the behavioral side of the um, theory basically says that everybody is, you know, ma constantly making irrational suboptimal decisions because of these behavioral biases. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lowe basically tries to marry the two and shows that in certain environments and, and a lot of the time the market is efficient, but they're, uh, that's punctuated by periods of volatility when uh, more people act, you know, more irrationally and these behavioral biases affect them to a larger degree. Um, so it's really not one or the other, but it's kind of a combination of both, which makes it interesting. Yeah. 
I think one of the the challenges of our profession is that, you know, we do like to make it more like the physical sciences where it's very clear cause, very clear effect. But because you're fundamentally dealing with people and what you do affects what I do, what I do affects what you do, it's like a, a circular loop, except it's more complex because it's not just two or three people here. We're talking about millions of, of, of participants. That That's why it gets, that's why it's, a, why, it's why this job is hard. It's, it's, it's also why it's fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the no market's ever the same. I mean, it's constantly evolving and the players are changing, their incentives are changing, the regulation around the financial markets is always behind and it's trying to play, it's kind of like a cops and robbers thing almost where, you know, the cops are usually a, a step or two behind uh, the robbers or the pirates as the case may be. Um, but it's kind of a constant uh, evolution where it's not, it's not dictated by physical laws of, you know, equations like physics is, but it's more of a you know, I'm, I'm a biology major, so I studied how species evolve and adapt. And you, know, you hear that survival of the fittest is actually survival of the species that's most able to adapt to changes in the environment. And that's really um, how I think about strategies and, uh, and tactics within the investment arena. You can't necessarily play the same playbook that you played for the past five or 10 years if you're undergoing a big change in the market. Particularly if everybody else is reading the same playbook and trying to get one step ahead of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that actually brings me to my book. And actually, I, ha I have two. One is purely frivolous. This is just pure escapism. Everybody behaves badly. This is the story of Ernest Hemingway and his degenerate friends in Paris and their adventures that led to The Sun Also Rises. There is absolutely no useful application of that. It's just fun. More useful is uh, The Economist Goes to the Game. This is also kind of like Amber's book. It's like Freakonomics. It's economic theory meets something a little bit strange. And it talks about the economics of sports and how uh, they, they go all sorts of different directions. One, one of my favorite chapters was on why athletes don't use their best move every time. Like if you're a pitcher and you have a wicked slider, why don't you throw that pitch at every at bat? And the answer, of course, is that the batter would be on to you and he would figure out how to hit that pitch and it would no longer be a devastating pitch. So if you are the pitcher, you have to vary it up. You have to keep the batter off balance. But of course, the batter knows that you're trying to keep him off balance. So he's trying to outthink you. The pitcher is trying to outthink the batter. The batter is trying to outthink the pitcher. Um, you know, the defense on the field is trying to adapt to what they think the uh, the hitter is going to do. He's watching the defense move around. And so he's adapting to their adaptation. It's really complex game theory. And, you know, you, you see it in sports. It's not like the average baseball player is some mathematical genius or something. They're just regular people, but they're kind of intuitively doing the math, you know, whether they don't, they don't write the equations, of course, but they're they're, they're essentially, you know, their brain is, is kind of doing that heavy lifting for them and it becomes almost like instinct. So I thought that aspect was, was really interesting. Uh, another fun part of the book was they talk about uh, the economics of stadium construction and that essentially every publicly financed stadium of the last like 30 years has been an absolute financial disaster for the uh, municipality or county or city or whatever that made it. So uh, yet we seem to, particularly my hometown of Dallas, we just seem to, mm -hmm. we can't seem to get out of the habit of building expensive stadiums for all people that are already rich and having the taxpayers pay for it. So go figure. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, last point that I, I point out from my book, the, they asked the question, are very highly paid athletes worth the money? And their answer was actually yes. And it, it goes into the winner take all economics of the modern era. If you go back, you know, 50, 100 years, baseball players didn't make that much money. Uh, basketball players, football players, nobody made that kind of money. And part of the reason was their trade wasn't scalable. You were performing that performance, whether you were pitching, hitting, you know, shooting, you know, whatever, dunking, whatever, whatever, whatever sport you're doing, whatever, however you, you perform the sport, you were limited to the audience that you were performing in front of. That changed a little bit with radio. It changed a little bit with TV. But you remember even when we were kids watching sports on TV in low definition on a small screen, it, it's just not that great. Well, what happened is, you know, you have, you know, basically the screens got bigger, the resolution got better, everything made it possible for this one performance to be broadcast all around the world as opposed to locally that changed the economics of sport and yeah it actually created a winner takes all um, scenario where you know, rather than the the difference in pay between kind of a lower grade uh, baseball player and a higher grade baseball player has shifted where the best make a ton of money and minor league ball players just kind of barely get by so i thought that was Quite interesting. That is interesting, Charles. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sports is a lot bigger business today than it was a couple of decades ago. And the analytics involved are crazy. I mean, you guys have probably seen Moneyball. That was, it goes into the, the quantification of baseball, but every sport has done the same thing. I, I remember my, you know, my kids are huge soccer fans and they went down the YouTube rabbit hole of looking up soccer analytics. And the uh, the professional soccer club, uh, FC Barcelona, they, they have a team of, of, Wants. I mean, they have a team of, you know, guys in white lab coats on, you know, messing with databases and such. That's, that's modern day sports. It's all quant. It's all, it's actually very sophisticated now. We are a few men down. Mike Carr and Ian King both wanted to make the show, but they couldn't make it. But they did, however, pass on what they were reading. I'll start with Mike Carr. This is, Mike is always interesting. And it's because he reads random stuff like this. Mike is currently uh, getting through Gibbons, the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which is, by the way, a bear to get through. That is a massive tome um, that was written, I believe, in the year 1776, around the time our country was declaring independence. So it's in that kind of older style of English. It's not really easy to get through. It's very people back then had more time than we do, I think. And so they tended to tended to write much longer books. But uh, anyway, very interesting read. The always interesting Mike Carr is uh, nibbling on that. Ian, not to be outdone, is reading Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity by Peter Attia, MD. This is interesting because I was just on with Ian talking about the problems faced by uh, aging societies in Japan and China. Now there's no real solution to aging. When your workforce gets old, they become less productive, they retire, and they become, you know, not to be mean, but sort of economic dead weight, you know, they're no longer producing anything, uh, even as consumers, and they're not really buying as much as they used to. So this is a very relevant and timely topic. We need to figure out how to utilize our senior citizens more effectively in the decades ahead if we are to grow our economy. Perfect. Well, guys, this was fun. Yeah. We should do Banyan Book Club more often. I always like to know what's on y'all's minds because uh, this is, you know, we read your 
your economic work, your investing work, but it's kind of nice to know kind of what goes into that, what um, what's what's in your brain firing those synapses. We should ask our viewers as well to write in and tell us what they're reading and uh, if they have any tips for us, a book that we maybe haven't heard of. Yes. Actually, yes. So to anybody viewing this right now, what are you reading? What, what do you like? What should we be reading? Write in. Banyan Edge at BanyanHill.com. We'd love to know. We're taking book recommendations here. If we, we see one that we really think is interesting, we'll mention it on air. So on that note, Adam, Amber, thanks for joining me as always. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. And to our viewers, thanks for tuning in to the Banyan Edge podcast. Please tune in next week, same time, same place. And until then, go out and make yourself some money. <laughs>